I came up to a light and a, a homeless guy came up to me and he had a cup in his hand and I could see in a cup that he had two tens and some change at the bottom. At that moment, he had more net worth than I did. I had $18 in the bank and $650,000 in debt. Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned Podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. My guest today is Justin Bailey, the co-founder and chief strategy officer of leading transportation management system provider, Rose Rocket. Justin and his team build modern enterprise-grade software that helps transportation companies improve communications with systems, customers, partners, and teams. A lifelong entrepreneur and Y Combinator alumni, Justin is recognized as a subject matter expert in the logistics industry through his extensive experience building and successfully exiting businesses, including a brokerage and consulting firm. Justin is an advocate for knowledge sharing and has contributed to over 30 national and international publications, including Inc. Magazine, Huffington Post, and The Globe and Mail. Justin spends his time building the next foundational elements of freight technology while working with Rose Rocket customers to future-proof their systems and their marketing and sales strategies. Justin is also a published author, keynote speaker, and father of four. Justin, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. This is such a, such a privilege. And I'm really excited both to learn more about your career, which is very inspiring, but even more excited to learn about what your relationship is with your inner knowing. And so I'm wondering if to start out, you can just tell me a little bit about who you are, where you come from, who are your people? Yeah, so I grew up in a... a smallish town just just north of north of toronto i guess you know who are my people and to that it's an interesting question because i think that that has you know changed over the years kind of came from a working class family so you know at times my my people were probably people who were of that you know that working class background and who were you know if i think of my peers who were going to continue on in that realm of life and i sort of think of like you know blue collar jobs and, and and things like that. And, you know, I think for me, even as a kid, I never totally felt like that, that worked for me. I'm incredibly uninclined mechanically. So first of all, I would just have no, <laughs> you know, business doing anything like, you know, work with my hands or, or anything like that. But, you know, I think from, from a young age, you know, and I actually have a moment sort of, a, of remembering probably around six years old thinking, you know, I, I don't, I don't fit in here. Um, and, mm -hmm. I, and I don't know that I knew what that meant then. And, and, but I, but I also at that same kind of in that same wavelength of thinking, I knew in my mind that I was going to do what I believed at that point to be great things, whatever that meant. But I think what I ultimately was thinking is that I am going to rise above this. And when I say rise above this, I don't just mean from like, like an economic perspective, or I was going to be more liberal or something like that. I, I meant like, you know, in sort of the environment in which I grew up in, which was, you know, it, it was, it was violent. It was chaotic. It was unstable. And it wasn't exactly like I was the only person, you know, going through those types of experiences as a kid right. in my community. So I just knew that that wasn't for me and I was going to go kind of somewhere else, you know, in, in life. And, and when I say rise above it, I just meant, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be better than this, you know? And so 
I think that's kind of where I rose from. I've since gone on to have, I have four kids. It's probably the biggest job and most important job that I've, that I've done. I've been through a couple of businesses, some successful, I would say, you know, I'd say some quite successful and, and then some not successful. You know, I've, I've lived a life. I'm 43 years old and I feel like I've, I've been through a lot of things. I, I have a, an eye disease that I don't talk about too often where I'm effectively going blind potentially. So, you know, I knew that when I was about 30, I have a mental health condition called borderline personality disorder. I am also married to an amazingly wonderful, supportive woman. Um, mm. And I have pretty much an extraordinary existence, I think, in spite of potentially what, you know, some might look at as, you know, huge challenges or, or sort of roadblocks to life. But I've, I've really, through the help of others and, and my own kind of inner motivations and unwillingness to kind of conform to challenges, have, I would say, risen above them, through them, with them. You know, and, and again, this is a, there's 43 years of learnings and wisdom here. I could probably go on forever, but I think largely what I'm trying to paint the picture of is I would consider myself to be, to be self-made person in every way in that I've taken things that, that have really, I think, anchored a lot of people and I've used them as, as opportunities to get better, be stronger. And I've been fortunate enough that I think throughout my life, I've been thrown a lot of adversity and I really somehow have been able to, I strive in adversity. And in fact, I think sometimes to the detriment, even of those around me, I, I, I crave it and I seek it. When I have adversity, I will succeed and I will rise. And, and so I think, yeah, it's a challenge sometimes for others around me because it's hard to, it's hard to watch, but I, I like it. And so well, that can be the catalyst, right? Yeah. And I think I'm not alone in this. I think you, you see it. And I, and I have those in my life who are like this too. It's where, you know, you're sort of backed into a corner and that's, you know, you kind of, you don't do the work until you're desperate. You know, you don't do the thing that needs to be done until it's, until you're sort of in that corner. It is a hard way to live. And I think through my kind of last, you know, I, I tend to break my life I, when I look at it sort of into the future. And in the past, I look at it in these, these very rounded decades. So kind of right. you know, my twenties to my thirties, my thirties to my forties type things. And I would say sort of in that 30 to 40 decade, I realized that to be a way in which I was having success but also a way that I probably didn't want to keep doing forever. So I have been spending, you know, meaningful time working on how to have, you know, success and joy, not as a counterbalance to struggle, but as just in, in of itself and only, and that's been a great sort of next evolution for me over, you know, that I'm currently kind of in the midst of, of figuring out. Well, that's an incredible thing to share because I think there are so many people who go through their whole life or go through at least years, decades, living a certain way and thinking that this is the only way to be. So I'm really, really excited to hear more because I feel like the fact that you, both, both the way that you tapped into your inner knowing before this time, but then also to hear a little bit more about that, because I do think reckoning with the ways that we are successful and then choosing to choosing to really intentionally embody change is really hard work. And yet I do think that that's one of one of the things that universally can actually really change our lives. At least that's been my own experience, but yeah, I would love to. Just, yeah. No, I'm super, yeah, please ask the question. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's, it's a fine line between being able to sort of rise above it with, with grace and purpose and intention versus it just being outwardly striving behavior. The risk with striving behavior as a, as a striver is that it has no end. And right. so you just are continually 
you know, I'll say that for a long time, the word content used to really turn me off. In fact, it would make me almost like sick to my stomach. I thought it meant capitulating, giving up, weakness. Right. And I feel like I was completely wrong in my assessment of what it meant to be content. You know, the idea of, you know, to being rich in, in this sort of my new kind of like found narrative. It's like, you know, being rich is having enough, you know? And so for a long time, I was driven through sort of typical type A striving behaviors to, you know, to what end, why? I don't know. And it doesn't matter that much. But I think as I'm moving through this next sort of, as my next decade that I'm in now, I'm thinking a lot more about the wisdom of, of being content, the wisdom of having enough. And that's actually been quite an experience, I would say, trying to go through that. And it's been, that's actually been incredibly challenging. Well, just to relate to what you're saying, I feel like in my own experience, the times when I've chosen to really embody those things and try to embrace that inner peace and that contentment with what is, I find I'm actually able to be much more present in the moment Mm -hmm. and to really experience a lot of joy and a lot of sensations that we almost numb out when we're moving so quickly into the future, into the next thing, like in that previous mindset that you were describing. I don't know if that resonates for you. Oh, hundred percent. I think you nailed it. I think that is what, that's what this kind of comes down to. I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's so sort of overserved as a, as a narrative about being present. Oh yeah. That we almost <laughs> glaze over it at this point, but the reason it's so, it's almost cliche at this point is because it's true. And so I think that is exactly what it is. I think being present is sort of the, the top of that hierarchy. And if yeah. you're present, all of those other things will, will fall into place. And I think striving is largely a preoccupied state of existence and preoccupation with either running from the past or running into the future, but either way you're running and you're really oscillating between, you know, like a fan. I, I love the word oscillating because I always visualize <laughs> the fan moving back and forth, you know, yeah. like present is the center of the fan and it just passes it on the way to the left or the way to the right, you know, that's so, right. You know, I think it's, I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. Amazing. Well, can we go back a little bit? I would love to hear about when you first you know, you mentioned being a six-year-old and knowing that you could rise above this, that you would accomplish great things, that you maybe had the sensation that there was a larger world out there, even if you couldn't necessarily see or know what it was yet. When would you say in your young adulthood, you first had an experience of tapping into your inner knowing? And also, how do you understand your inner knowing? Hmm. So I think there was a a lot of sort of micro moments, I would call them growing up, but it, in many ways it's, it's been, so there's, I'll try to break that into, there's two big questions there. So I'll kind of go to the first one in terms of experiences. Thank I you. would say that there was a lot of moments where it was more of a, a, so in, in <laughs> this is sort of related and sort of not, but you know, I, this always stuck with me and, and I remember in grade in grade nine, and just to kind of give you sort of a picture of maybe how I was viewed. And, and I remember my gym teacher saying to me, you know, gym teachers called guys by their last names, right? So he said, Bailey, he said, you're either going to be a millionaire or you're going to be in jail. It's probably both. And, and what that always meant to me was, that I think the, the compliment was the millionaire. The yeah. jail part was kind of most people in which I was going to school with were probably going to spend some time there. <laughs> this idea, it was kind of this narrative that's always stuck with me. It's like, 
you're relatable and you're popular and you're like the people here, but there's something that's different about you. Yeah. That I can see. And, and that when he told that to me, and by the way, I've never been to jail, so I've been able to avoid that, but it's like, amazing. I, I, I yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was able to really, that is kind of crystallized. I think it's sort of how I always thought of myself is that there was this part of me that was like others. And there was this other part of me that was just going to go somewhere else and going to do bigger things and going to be, you know, again, going to be a, a, a decimal point percent exception to the rule. That I'd right. say was less intuitive more than it was this. And, and again, it was an intuition, but it was so, so deeply baked that it was, that it was just a, it was a fact. Yeah. It's and a I part of your self-concept. It gets the other. It's exactly. I just, I just knew it to be a, the case. And I yes. think when you know something that strong, you will, that will manifest, that will materialize. But it goes to like a moment that I can call on that I think is maybe more, more akin to the question. And this is coming a little bit later in life. So as I mentioned, I have four kids and three of them are from a first marriage. And that, that time in my life, you know, so it's about 30 years old, that, that story I'm about to tell, I was 30 years old. And we had three kids really fast, you know, and looking back, you know, they're, they're teenagers now and my ex-wife and I have a, have a good relationship. But at that time we, we did not. And again, we were young and there was a lot on our plate and just, it's just the, the chaos of, you know, three kids under three and a half, basically, and just trying to figure it all out on our own. And our marriage was deteriorating, but maybe I didn't know it then. I just knew the relationship was strained. And looking back now, I feel like I was just a kid. Right. And so I'm laying in bed and I'm reading a book. So this book, which is, which I think is obviously a classic, is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Right. Uh, I was in a bookstore, I was living in Barrie, Ontario at the time. And I went into a bookstore and it was this used bookstore. It just kind of opened. So I wanted to just go in to check it out. It was a new store that opened somewhat close to where I was living, just walked into the store. And there was this, the book wasn't on the shelf. It was behind the counter in a pile of, as used bookstores are, it's just like stacks and stacks of books. You know, you, you always feel like you're yes. walking into like a collector's home. You almost feel like bad buying the books from them. And when they sell them to you, it's almost like begrudgingly sell them. Right? Yes. So kind of this vibe of like, I've had that I don't experience. want to ask for a book in here because the guy's going to be pissed off that I'm buying anything. Right. And so I, uh, I see this book in the back and it's, my eyesight's not very good in general, but this book, if anyone's ever seen it, is I think it's like, it's green and white and, and, yeah. and it's like the white, it just pops the color. Like you really can see it from far away and think you grow rich, very small, easy to read words from afar. And so I see this book just sitting on the back and I said, what is that book? And he pulls it out and he just kind of holds it up and shows it to me. I think, and I said, I'll take that. And no con, no clue, never heard of it, no nothing. Right. So I took it home, started reading it. And there's this question in the book and it says, in order to, it's all about kind of, obviously the, the title is pretty self-explanatory for those who yeah. haven't read it. And, and it basically said, for, you know, what are you willing to give up? It is going to sound maybe a little bit shallow in its narrative, but it's, it's, the book is much, much deeper than this. Yeah, this it truly is a classic, right, of the genre. Yeah. 100%. And so it's like, you know, what are you willing to give up to be rich or be successful? I'm forgetting what the final sort of word was there. And it just, it, I, I said it out loud. I'm laying there in bed and it just went bang. I said, my marriage. Like just nothing, like it just, it just rang through me. Like something else. It wasn't me saying it because at that point, you know, I came from a divorce family and I didn't want to go through a divorce and I had three young kids and I couldn't imagine breaking their hearts going through something like that. Of course. It became crystal clear to me in order to move to where I am now, 13 years later, that that's what I had to do. You know, I was doing it like an average thing in an average life in an average house and an average family. I was going to probably raise average kids, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it, this is not to be derogatory towards that existence, but that did not align with my six-year-old self saying, you're going to do basic, like base point percentage things in the world. 
yes exactly do big moving things sorry man but this is your mission i didn't mean to make it that way but you are here to do something really really big yeah that's the life program you're on yes exactly and i was and and at that point just felt bigger even at that age it just felt bigger than me and so at that at that sort of moment it said i just it just blurted it loud and from that moment, I knew that that was the next thing I had to do. And that was, and that took some years to get, to get through that and get, but I eventually, you know, I think, you know, call it two years later, that was what had happened. And, and that was the moment as, as we did, as, as my ex-wife and I decided that this is the time for us to, to split up and go our ways. That was a bit, I had a business at that point that was basically from that moment on, it was going into bankruptcy and then I had also this, and I'm talking like, this is like a, a 90 day window. So it was wow. divorced. The business is going to go bankrupt. And I got a letter in the mail from, from the government saying your license is suspended because you've been diagnosed with this eye disease that the optometrist didn't, didn't tell me about, which is degenerative. And you will go blind anywhere from tomorrow or the next 50 years. So you could have easily tomorrow. felt like my life is over. Other people might've felt that way. Hundred percent. And and look, I like in that moment, but it's not like I was like, fuck yeah. Like I I I love adversity. You know, a lot of this is like you look back, you're like, wow, I did really well in that moment, all things being equal. Right. Gonna be real. That was incredible weight, you know, at that at that moment. Telling your my oldest son at the time was six years old and telling him that his mom and I aren't gonna live together, it's probably still the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I can't imagine having that conversation, but here's a question for you. You said you knew because when you read the book, you said out loud, my marriage, and it sounded like you felt it in multiple dimensions. If I'm hearing you correctly, you described feeling it in your body, like a sort of shock went through, you spoke it out loud. So you heard yourself say it and you knew it. So like in the world of formal intuitive practices, you were actually tapping into three different established ways of knowing which is clairaudience, claircognizance, and clairsentience, when you can really feel something viscerally. Mm -hmm. Did you continue to have any of those sensations going forward during such adversity? That's early in the book, you know? And so as I I finished the book, that then turned me on to Tony Robbins. And then that turned me on to the next thing and the next thing. So I was kind of on the path from that moment. So I was kind of living this. It's not like my ex-wife was under the impression that things were going well for us. Right. But I knew kind of from that moment that this was, it wasn't if it was when. And so I was kind of on the track. I don't want to say I was building towards it because it almost sounds like disingenuous or somehow I was living a, a, a second life. It was more like it just, if that was true and I knew it to be because as you talk about like, I can even describe it. It was this heat that came from the top of my head and it just went right through me into my chest and like outward, like almost a, like a U, like it kind of came in from the top and then right out to the front and back up again. And I could just like, I can even picture to this day that feeling of warmth and it just, and then words came with it. So as that kind of heat passed from my head down through my eyes and my ears, and as it was passing my mouth, that just came out of my mouth on the way down. And then the heat yeah. kept going into my chest and then out of my chest. And so that was just the word that came from it. It wasn't, it was beyond my capacity to control it. So, I mean, right. that was so powerful. It didn't require new things. But what would happen from that is I started building mantras. So I started, I started, you know, when I was, I'd walk the dog every morning and I would say, you know, at or before November 1st, 2020, I will turns to gold. And like, so that stuff started happening. Like I would just say it every single day, multiple times a day. I would tell those around me, like, I am going to like, 
that's when I really started understanding what manifesting was and really started understanding how, how effective I was at doing that. And as I started to understand how you can move energy, how you can move the world in the way in which you want it to, to behave for you. And you yeah. start building that muscle and you get very skilled at it. I believe I have and am still very skilled at that. It just became, I hate to sound so kind of callous about this, but it became almost a, this is like in, in the order of things that need to happen. This is just a thing that needs to be done. Put it on a checklist. I will get done when it's done because I completely trust the universe to conspire in my favor and what I'm trying to do. And that'll happen when it's supposed to happen. And I didn't need to put inordinate amount of pressure or focus on it, knowing that it was sort of taking care of itself in the, in the process of all the other things that were occurring for me. So I just knew that it was, it was going to happen when it happened. Of course. And I'm going to stop you for a second. Cause I don't think you're being callous at all. I think you're very clearly describing this process where when you do the work to arrive at like in, in, so <laughs> I work with a lot of different people around cultivating their intuition and, and all of us have some level of aligning or healing or unblocking of old belief systems to do. And when I hear you describe your story, it's just obvious that you understood one that this is what I truly believe. And now I'm going to embody this life that I meant to live that is in clear alignment. Right. And then the other piece of it too, is that I feel yeah. like what you're describing truly is this like expedited version of a process that sometimes takes other people years to unwind because we're so deeply attached to the, I'll call it. And again, I get what you're saying about this sounds cliche, right? Like limiting beliefs, but the limiting beliefs are the social conditioning that we receive from the environments and the societies that we grow up in. It's all these different pieces that tell people who they should be in the world. And that is not coming from their inner voice. Well, you know, I'll kind of add, so maybe, maybe part of that is, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier, I had a very challenging, you know, childhood in terms of just a lot of, again, a lot of abuse. And I oftentimes blamed my mom and still to this day have, have challenges in that relationship with her for just, you know, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you put us first? All the, you know, these kinds of traumas, these un unhealed mm -hmm. challenges that I still have as a result of, of, of sort of my childhood, but I will give her credit where I think credit is due is that, and it's, again, it's one of these things that's a byproduct. I don't know if it was ever intentional, but the way I grew up, and again, I grew up kind of in a, in a small town. We had the lake. We like, I spent a ton of time just, I was feral, you know, my, <laughs> there was never, I had no, there was no curfew. There was no structure. I was like, just go out and run. And I hated being at home because there was, it was such a shitty existence that I just, I would stay out all the time. I would, I would go to friends' houses and if they would let me stay over, I would. And I would just like swim all day and bike all day. And I was just, even at that time, you know, we look back at that as being like a more free time because it's pre-social media and pre-internet and stuff. But there was still a lot of kids who were playing a lot of Nintendo and like who were having parents that were putting them in every single sport and all these kinds of things. And I think in some ways, what, what that also did, and I'd say I'd give credit to my mom on this, is she fostered in us I, I believe myself to have a, an, an incredibly deep and vivid imagination. And I, that was intentional. That was on purpose. We as kids would go to multiple, there was a period of time when my, when my parents first got divorced and then before my, my mom started sort of dating assholes, there was kind of this multiple <laughs> years of it was just kind of us. And we would go to like, we went to like, like Baha'i religion stuff. We went to Jehovah's Witness. We would try different religions like two or three times and go to the next, wow. one, the next one. We went to like Hare Krishna. We did like 
all this stuff. And then assholes come along and I'm like, fuck this. I'm out of here. And I would go and just run around all day with, but baked in with these imaginations from being eight years old and being in these like, you know, niche kind of like Eastern philosophy type religion things. And yeah, you know, you don't know what you're picking up at that age. It's very subconscious, but you're yeah. picking up some stuff. So I think a lot of my ability to kind of see the future really came down to just this uncapped imagination. And then once I realized that you actually could create the things you visualized and mm-hmm. now, now that I know I'm empowered with this deep, rich, unlimited, boundless, we'll call it imagination, that I could do whatever I wanted. And when those things clicked, I was like, yeah, man, I can do whatever I want. And whatever and happens you- to me is, is a result of my imagination or limitations or fears. And so I could take full accountability for all the things that were occurring to me because I knew like, look, if I can create good things, that doesn't excuse me to say, well, I created only good things and bad things that happened to me make me a victim, but good things are my own. No, man. If I'm making good yeah. things, I'm making the bad things too. And you can kind of adjust as you go. So all this to say, it wasn't that I overcame things because I still have a lot of trauma that's unresolved and buried. And I still have a really hard time facing some of it. Even in therapy, I do everything I can to avoid talking about the trauma. Right. Um, but, but I will say that I think you can sometimes, it would appear, you don't need to necessarily go to the scorched earth on fixing all things wiping the slate completely clean and now you're open i think you can actually find gaps within the consciousness gaps within your sort of your experiences and pull intuition into that even though you still got a bunch of messy shit over here on the right hand side as a metaphor i i think that's absolutely true clear no i i think think you're right and i think it's a lot to ask and that puts a lot of pressure on it's like okay i'm going to tap into my sort of my intuition i'm going to build myself better manifestation skills and, and, and a deeper sense of presence and being but in order to do that i must eradicate and heal all stories traumas like you know man i'm, I'm of the mind that i don't know that you can fully resolve trauma like you know i don't know that you can i, I mean maybe you can i i haven't so it's from, from a perspective of one but it's like i feel like it's almost like Instead of healing or eradicating it, it's accepting it. Yes, you're integrating it and integrating it. Exactly, exactly. And I think that there's just a lot of pressure on this, like, clear the slate, you know, eat, pray, love. And now you can start, you know, doing it. It's like, no, man, you can start today. No, and it's much better to do it that way. In fact, as you're describing it. I mean, one thing, I just want to jump back a second. You mentioned talking about this experience, running around in nature, being sort of free and wild as a child between these various experiences that you had with your mom and religion. And as I heard you saying it, it just seems so clear to me. And this seems like something that's very unique to you, although I think many people would wish for it for their children. It's very obvious to me that you were both very interconnected with nature and also directly connected to your inner authority. Yeah. And so that alone, I think, becomes something that is a lever that, as you describe the steps that followed, would be very reinforcing with your sense of, well, I meant for something bigger. I'm going to rise above this. And I can because I'm free and, and kind of wild, you know, out there where I think people who have parents that are telling them, you know, sit straight, be good. Don't do this. Don't do that. They don't they don't receive that level of liberation that even the difficult circumstances of your upbringing sort of forced or nourished or 
gave you one way or another. I, and it's, it's, and I think that's, and that's fair. I think, you know, I, I mean, but, but to, there's, there's a counter to that. So as a parent, and again, this mm-hmm. is partially where my mom just didn't really prescribe to this because of her own, you know, her own narratives and her own background and what she believed to be important or not important. You know, I was, I was a, a, an atrocious student. I don't know that I actually even graduated high school because um, mm-hmm. I never stuck, I never got my final report card. And I was like, right on the, like either, either I'm missing a credit for high school or I got it by like 51%. I don't even know. Like I have no clue. So it, it, it didn't matter, you know, to me again, cause I, again, I knew things, I knew I could do things without that, but I think there's as parents and I do it too. And it's, this is really the, the kind of the crazy part of this is it's like, we do, we have such a difficult time you know, having our kids go through um, anything that looks like pain or struggle or or conflict or even duress or even like, like heaven forbid that they're wearing a t-shirt when it's a little bit cold. You know, <laughs> the, level of like, the level of like care that we put onto our like kids and the protection. Oh yeah. Um, so in some ways, you know, I have lots of memories of other parents looking at my mom with absolute like like disgust on their face. Like I remember going to school, walking to school and the parents calling my te- the, my mom and saying, you know, it's middle of winter saying, Justin came to school in a jean jacket today. Cause I used to walk to school in kindergarten. I used to walk, you would never let your kids walk this far today. Kindergarten okay. by myself, I would walk probably, I don't know, like, I don't know if this is most Canadian listeners, but you know, half a kilometer to school yeah. as, a, as, a, as a kindergarten on my own. And I would get myself dressed in the morning to leave the house. My mom's still be in bed. So there's actual neglect that was happening. Probably, well. but again, it's like, yeah. it's, it's pressure makes diamonds. So would you actually, yeah. would you actually do that to your kids now? And then hope this is what happens because this is the thing. Most of the time, this isn't what happens. Yeah. So we, but then we just, and then we just go so far. It is very difficult to reproduce or manufacture a wild experience. As I can say from someone who kind of had that to, to now look, I want yeah. to be very clear. I did not live in the woods. I did like, this is like, this is meant for good storytelling. I still had a house I could go into. There was yeah. food in the fridge. Like this is not like some, there is people who can tell a much greater, more quote unquote wild story than this. But I think for like growing up on like the fringes of Toronto, like this was particularly, ex- you know, yeah, well, you know, extreme movie strong. And, like, and we're having a conversation about understanding the part of you that knew you were free to create in your life. And that's exactly. why I brought it back to that point. Cause I think- whether your mom was going through a hard time or whether other parents were just judgmental, the fact is you had this degree of freedom that made you know what it felt like to be alive and on your own from a young age. Yeah. And look at, you know, back then as a kid, like I didn't want that, you know, I didn't want that. I, I, I wanted to be like other kids. I wanted to have warm lunches. I wanted the things that looked normal. I didn't want people to look at my mother that way. That hurt, that hurt me when I saw Yeah. It, and I so, can imagine how painful that would so be. So it wasn't like I was like running around being like, like, I wasn't like Huckleberry Finn out there. You know, it wasn't <laughs> that like that, you know, it's not like that. It's easy yeah. to look back and tell it almost with a, with a, a, a narrative that slants toward that feeling. Yeah. Well, but because that would feel better, life. right? That's the, it, that's it, the it healing. Exactly. It's a bit of a, it's, it's, a, it's, I'm selling it now versus like at the time it was, it was shitty. You know, it was shitty, but I, I, I can't help but believe that that has obviously informed who I am today and given me some superpowers that most don't have because 
most people were cared for in a different kind of way. I will say just to kind of like close the loop, we're gonna have to close it yeah. with a little bit more color to this is that my mom, when she left home, so again, she grew up in a very traumatic situation. Her 16th birthday was the day she was legally allowed to move out. She moved out and she moved with a boyfriend. She lived in Northern Ontario onto a native reserve. And she lived there for years trapping rabbits and they would make them into like mitts. Like that was what they did. And that's what she right. did as a 16 to like a 19 year old, I think is what, that's how she lived. And so there was, you were kind of mentioning this connection into kind of nature and connection into sort of knowledge of, of I'll call them kind of universal principles and you know, these types of things. But like those were largely, were taught to me from a very early age of being kind of one in the same. And so I right. felt it was, it was being outside. It was being connected to, to nature that really, they were, they were the same thing to me in a sense. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, that the years that your mother would have spent there would have been so formative and shaped her own paradigm for life, I'm sure. And then that would right. be passed down to you. One other thing I just want to jump to. So you had been talking earlier about how you don't necessarily, I'm paraphrasing, you don't necessarily think that we need to be like fully healed of our traumas in order to tap into our intuition. And I wanted to just jump back to that because I actually feel like we could go one step further in this is based on my own experience to say, I think that obviously it's important to do the work on ourselves and to continue to do the work on ourselves. And I also think that there's a danger in losing our connection to who we have been and who we are. And I feel like when we, when you were making that point about like, no, we can tap into our intuition now. I actually think that understanding and having awareness of the traumas that we've been through, whether we've walked quite a way forward, but still know there's more to heal or whether it feels a long, long distance back. I think that actually helps align us to serving whom we are meant to serve in life. I'm mindful of how I say this because I do think personally, I want to do as much work on myself to be as integrated around all of the experiences I've had as I can. And at the same time, I think the people who gravitate to us as friends, as students, as mentees, they come because there's something in what they've lived through and or are overcoming that resonates with the frequency that you're holding in your life based on where you've been and how you've gotten here. So mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, I don't feel like I would be the kind of teacher and mentor that I am if I wasn't connected to the different kinds of suffering that I've experienced as a human being in the life that I've had. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would second that completely. It's, it's, I don't know, you know, we are, who we are based on, you know, largely based on our experiences that we've had. So, I mean, those good, bad, or otherwise are informed completely who we are. And I completely agree with the, you know, the like attracts like it's sometimes it's, it's hard to argue with physics. And, and so I think that is, you know, I sort of struggle with the idea in that it's not a fully, I don't have a, a, a I shouldn't say I don't have a strong opinion. I feel like I could argue both sides, maybe more, more accurately where it's like, in some ways, I feel like accepting your trauma as who you are is accurate or empowering or the right thing to do. And on other hands, I feel like giving 
and it, now, and I think the trauma can be can be largely dependent on the the type of trauma. But if it's trauma mm-hmm. that involves somebody else inflicting that trauma on you, say, or or in it be putting you in a situation in which trauma was was experienced, I have this this other sense where I feel I don't want to give. And as I say this out loud, I think I actually know the right answer here. But I feel like yeah. I don't want to give the air or the time in the space yes. to that that person or that trauma to suggest like you don't get to dictate who I am. You yeah. don't get to, to, to have that type of effect on me. But as I say this out loud, it's clear to me that that comes from a place of, of, of resistance. And as much as you may not like that, that idea that this, that this trauma informed who you are, it doesn't make it untrue. Yes. So- but you're touching on a nuance because I think we are informed by all of our lived experiences and how we've navigated them. But I would not say that any person is defined in who they are by their trauma alone. Right. Like you are not your trauma. Right. Yep. To me, that's the nuance. Fair. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good call out. I feel like it feels like a slippery slope trying to define our relationship to trauma relative to how we understand ourselves. Yeah, you can say that again. I, I'm, I've got, a, I've got a lot of work to do there. Still, I would say, sort of this, this decade. If I look at what am I, what am I, what am I trying to think about? And when I'm, when I'm 50, how do I want to look back and say, you know, what did I? And I hate this word again. This kind of goes back to my, my striving. But like, what did I accomplish? Yeah. But I think largely it's, it's, it's to have faced trauma to have kind of navigated through some of it to unearth more of it and to just to be more knowledgeable about about what it is and to it's a bit of a for me it's a bit of a lock a lockbox in in my sort of in my body and okay. uh, I'm I'm looking forward to opening it in in some ways and I'm and I'm terrified in other ways to to fully to fully go in there well and I think it's powerful it's powerful to me to hear you share that and I think especially for people listening, hearing your story and also knowing what you've accomplished in your life, in your family, professionally, having you share that this is the focus of the next decade for you, I think should be really inspiring to all of us because it shows that we are all works in progress Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what you accomplish publicly. We still reckon with ourselves privately inside of ourselves at the end of the day. I was just going to add to that is that, you know, and this is actually something I was just talking about last night with my partner. And and I went to a family reunion that so I saw some family members this weekend. I met a second cousin that I've never met in my entire life, you know? And so, and I, wow. I saw some people I haven't seen in 15 years or more, I guess. And what, what I took away from that was that there's a few, a few examples of, of, you know, cousins I have that I know who have gone through some trauma and they're about my age and I can see that they're still suffering from that. And you can kind of point to like, this event happened then this has started happening after that, this sort of happened after that. And it feels like life goes quickly, you know, our yes. time here is quick, but it's like some of these anchor events or experiences, they're not omnipresent, but they are so strong still, you know, that it, it almost, my point to this is it feels like you cannot stuff this down no matter what the trauma is, no matter where you put it, it will take up the same amount of space as it did the yeah. day or week or month or year in which it occurred. 
it, it never shrinks in size. So you can put it in different places. You can put it in the basement in a storage bin, but it's still there and it's no smaller than it was when it happened. And right. So until you sort of face it, can you only shrink it? But I feel like we move it around in, in, in sort of in a way of convincing ourselves that it doesn't affect us. We've dealt with it or whatever it might be, but it does not shrink in size. And I think so for me, it's like, not like I've shuffled this all around the place. I put it in the attic, I put it in the basement. I've, you know what, screw it. I'm going to put it at the front door. I'm going to deal with it. It's like, oh, not today. Maybe I'll just put it over there. And next thing you know, it's in the corner. I've got some stuff piled on top of it. And I'll, I'll get to that when I get to it kind of thing, you know? Right. It's like, it doesn't shrink in size. And so now for me, it's like, it's either now or it's later. And I'd rather do one on 43 than one on 53, 63 or 73 or 83. Yes. And why is it that you've chosen to do that? Actually, I say yes, because I feel like I understand, but I'd like to know from your own perspective, why you want to address it now versus later. Because I've been in therapy for almost 10 years and I have made incredible progress specifically around some mental health condition stuff. And I'm, and I'm very proud of myself and very grateful for the support of the people around me who have kind of dealt with me through this, this period of time. But I've realized that, that I'm, I'm hitting a wall in terms of progress, because as I, as we use this metaphor of this, say this tote bin, and it's just top of mind, we just did a whole bunch of reorganizing in the basement. We've got a thousand totes. Now, <laughs> yeah. So as I kind of think about my mess that was, I've done a lot of like, okay, here's all the piles of stuff. This mm-hmm. needs to go here. This needs to be donated. And I've kind of done, I've, I've cleared out so much of the basement and it's so nicely organized and put away. This, this is still the metaphor of, of my, yes, my, of course. my experiences. But there's still that pile that I've said, I'll get to that later, which is the trauma pile. I'll get to yeah. that. And I'm looking around, I'm like, there aren't many piles left. Right. That one's fucking huge. So I can either go and like, yeah, sweep up the corner with, you know, dust will always be settling. And that's kind of what I've been doing. I feel like therapy for me still effectively has been more of this, like, go and, you know, some, there's some dust balls in the corner and clean that up and yeah, oh, wipe the baseboards. Here. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, there's a couple of things on the floor, pick those up and put those away. And it's like, you know, one session, one solve type thing. Right. Where yeah. it's like, this is like, okay, I'm signed. This is a, this is a multi-year multi-pronged experience. That's going to have two steps forward, one step back. It's like, it is, it is work. So I think I've been putting off the work because it's just, it's hard. It's big. And because I'm so avoidant of it, because this has shown up for me in my life. Usually the things I'm avoiding the most are the things I need to be doing the most. Right. And so I'm avoiding this in a way that just says to me, like, I know, I, I think partially the question was why now? Because I yeah. know myself well enough now to know that this is, this is actually the most important thing for me to be working on because it's the thing I want to do the least. And do you have a vision? Ooh, my voice cracked. Do you have a vision of what will be on the other side of that work? Because I think oftentimes when we integrate our traumas, when we do that, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's healing or whether it's processing and understanding it, I find often space opens up that can then be, you know, like that place in your basement that had this big pile of shit sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. Once it's organized, oftentimes space opens up. That's a new capacity. Do you have any vision of what that capacity will be for you? I mean, it's like, there's, what are sort of the, some of the ongoing challenges I face with myself? I have body image issues. So perhaps maybe, maybe dealing with trauma, because it's funny how these things work, right? It's a bit of a, you, you put, it's like a water balloon. You squeeze one side and it kind of pops up the other, right? So will dealing with the trauma help with 
body issues. No idea, but that'd be cool if that happened, right? Yeah. So it kind of happens like, and I'm giving one of like multiple things, but if I think of, I have, when you say this vision, I'll, I should be more, I'll answer that question specifically. I have this vision of myself being probably about 60 years old. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I'm sitting on a couch in this really neat ranch style house. I feel like it's in like Utah or something. I don't think I want to live in Utah, but like I'm, I'm sitting there and I get the image that, that strikes me of about myself is my eyes are kind. They're relaxed. Mm. They're, they're, they're of a man at peace. And that's the image now. And I want to be clear. I'm, that's about 20 years from now. Yes. And I don't think for a second that this might not take that long. And so that but if it doesn't take that long, your eyes can still be at peace, having been at peace for a decade. Take six months, great. And, and I can get there. But I can say right now that a deep look in the mirror, my eyes are not at peace. Mm-hmm. And so that vision of me there in that moment, and it's this again, this is me saying, like, I see it as clear as as that will happen. That will be me. I will be sitting in that place. I will be wearing that shirt. Those things will all happen. They they always yes. happen for me. I I see. It's, 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 do I see the future? No, I create it. And so I will be right. creating that future that will happen. And so it's sort of between now and then, I guess that I'm on that path to get there. And, and that's, so that's what I see. But what, when I squeeze the trauma side of the balloon, what pops out the other side? I don't know, but there's some things that could be pretty helpful. <laughs> right. I totally. I don't know which one, but it's like, you know, I can give you a list of a bunch of things that like, if I could improve on this or I could feel better about that, or if this would stop worrying me or, you know, who know, like, I don't know, but I know the job is yet to be done. And I have, I have full faith that you will do it no matter what comes out the other side. And I, I want to go back to something you just said, where you were saying, I don't see the future. No, I create it. And I actually think this is something I want to clarify on the record, because when when I talk about I talk about intuition, but I also talk about psychic stuff. I talk about spiritual things. It gets into the metaphysical realms. Right. Mm -hmm. And in reality, I believe that we all have what I call divine free will, which is what you're describing. It's the Mm -hmm. it's the option to choose and work toward a reality that you can imagine and that there's no outside person outside of yourself and your own inner authority who knows best or who can say what you will do because we all have the power to choose. And I just want to go on the record saying that because I think often people who dabble in psychic practices or the sacred arts will talk about things as if they're all knowing and they have the power. And to me, you know, the, the energy of all that is the great mystery. It is a mystery. And so it's up to us as individuals to make that choice. And when I think about people who I understand to be, you know, hugely accurate intuitives or seers, let alone the kind of work that I do, what I really think is that people can see into multiple possibilities for the future that someone might not necessarily see for themselves. And the goal is that people do exactly what you do, which is to see for themselves that there are infinite potential futures and that they can then pick and choose and allow for that process to unfold that would get them to that place that would be their highest possible outcome as they would define it for themselves, not based on what me or a parent or some outside authority thinks 
you know, you should do. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think, so I, I would say if I were to kind of talk about how I think about this or how I do this, cause I think it's, for me, it's actually relatively pragmatic in its approach. And I kind of go back to a couple of things I said earlier. It's that one, having an imagination that is as boundless as possible allows you to see as many possibilities as possible. And I think, I think imaginations are something that are largely, it almost feels systematically attempted to be driven out of us, you know? And so yes. waging war against that, I think is actually a very important thing you can do for yourself and against for your kids as well. And, and, and fostering and protecting with everything you have your ability to imagine. And I think also in the way in which the world is moving, I think imagination is becoming an incredibly powerful currency that we can yes. be able to use and, and continue to use. And so that's not just a side, you know, sidebar to that, but so having an imagination that you can that you can access, tap into, um, will allow you to then potentially you know, see multiple possibilities. But I think the the under I think part of having um, an abundant imagination comes almost you have to underpin that with faith in that right. you believe it could possibly happen because the thing that caps the imagination is that well that could never happen so therefore I won't even visualize it that you may not even consciously realize this is what you're doing but you're sabotaging your ability to see bigger, brighter things as a result of, wow, that could never happen, which is just a lack of faith. Right. So to me, the, the, the formula to this is faith plus imagination equals outcome. If you believe it like it's a fact, that is faith. Mm-hmm. You don't have to believe in anything other than the outcome itself. It doesn't require a God or a, a deity or a spirit. or It doesn't require anything. It requires a belief in the outcome a belief that it can happen, a belief that you happen to the world, the world doesn't happen to you. And that's a scientific yes. fact. Yes. So if that's true, you believe that completely and you can put, and then, then it basically is, what can you imagine? What is the limit to your imagination? Because if you believe that you can happen to the world and you can imagine the outcome and you can see it as clear as day, then that will occur. Because if you say otherwise, then you don't have the faith. If you, If I just said, that you have this, this, this unwielding faith with this imagination that allows you to see exactly what you want. And it may happen. That statement of may indicates that you don't have the faith. So it's the, the unwielding faith, the unlimited imagination, it will happen. Faith, <laughs> faith plus imagination equals stronger faith. Yeah. And then it occurs. And that's what a manifestation looks like. That's simply that to me is like at its, at its core kind of belief. And now we're using different words for it. I like that word for it. I like manifestation for it because, you know, it is to suggest that we are in control. Yeah. It's the nuance between like people associating to dogma versus being empowered in their own self. And it's all kind of the same thing, right? So it's, it's all really just based on a, 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 again, a belief that it that these things will occur. The influencing aspect of it, whether it's God mm-hmm. uh, or the universe. Or yourself. Or, or your nature or yourself. Yes. It, it's it kind of irrelevant, I think. You know? Yeah. I want to jump in on that because I love that you're talking about faith and imagination because I think it is true. We will create whatever it is that we believe we will do. That thought, that belief, guides our thoughts. It shapes the way that we speak. It shapes the way that we act. And that in turn impacts the way in which we show up in our environment as 
creators of our lives. I've heard people reference belief and believing and separately imagination. But what it, what I'm hearing you say is that when you have that that understanding that what you believe is what you will create, if you don't add in that level of imagination to dream of your greatest dreams or limitless possibilities, or sometimes I even hold the intention for miracles beyond my wildest imagination. Like Mm -hmm. take what I think the best thing is and show me how I'm limited as a human being and my concept of it to create something even better than that. When you add in that dimension of imagination, that's when the outcomes are even more awesome because you could believe something that's a limiting belief about yourself and it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think one of the great ways to test this, and I, I, I bring this up to people often when we're talking about this, and I've been fortunate to have, it seems a lot of younger people kind of coming to me recently and asking me about this. There's almost like this, I feel like a renaissance right now around manifesting and universal principles. You know, I feel like the secret yes. did a really nice job of making it kind of mainstream. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of yeah. quiet. And I feel like there's a bit of a micro renaissance and maybe it's actually, I guess that's kind of a, can't really say that it's either a renaissance or it's micro, but so I feel like it's a renaissance in of itself. It's kind of coming back again. It's like the renaissance of the renaissance. A kind of thing, right? Exactly. It's like, yeah, it's, it's right. Exactly. It's a bit of a rebound. So I would say, I say this to to people and I ask a question. So I'm going to ask this question to you. Do you think, and maybe this is an unfair question because I think you're going to, there's a certain way that most people will answer this and you're going to know what it is, but I'm curious actually what your thinking is. If I said to you, in the next 30 days, I want you to create a dollar. Now, how that dollar shows up is irrelevant. You might find it on the street. It might be sitting on the counter. Or you might be like looking for something else and it pops up in the car cup holder. Do you think you could find, aka manifest a dollar in the next 30 days? Absolutely. If I said the exact same thing, but I said a million dollars, do you think you could do the same thing? Yeah, I can see where people would hit a block on that. Yeah. But do I think I could do it? Yeah. You know what? If I believed that I had that's such I oh you got me. <laughs> yes, I think I think I could, but I think if I was gonna say I believe I could, there's all of these intellectual and earthly pieces that I would want and feel that I need need to have in place to know that I could yeah. do that. Yeah. I don't know so that I, I would appreciate but maybe that's the the construct of time. Like I have this idea of what's possible in 30 days when I spend a certain amount of time doing work versus caring for my children. And I sense the limitation of, of the circumstances to be so abundant. Well, I actually put, I, I would flip it the other way around to suggest that you, we have somehow decided that the universe has a concept that a million and a dollar or anything different. The universe has no conceptual value of anything. And yeah. so whether it's time or money, why does the universe care if it's a million or a dollar? It doesn't know the difference. But what You're that right. shows that it's, it's our, the, 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 the limitation in which that our minds are set, and again, this is part imagination, part faith limitations, is that like, why does it have to be any other way that you find a lottery ticket? Or like, it doesn't have to be like, you, your kind of mind went to like, yes. well, from my, like, could I create it myself? I, yes. Rather than the, the kids to the side, and I'd have to like hustle for do some like crazy deal. And like, not necessarily, cause you didn't have to do that for the dollar. Right. You didn't have to go like, go, go like work your ass off. Now I get it. You can go up to shoppers drug market right now, put your hand out and probably someone hands you a dollar within an hour done. You got it. I do yeah. get that there is a sort of a human limitation to this, but it's meant as an exercise 
to test your ability to, yeah, to understand your faith and understand your imagination. And that's, I think that the closer you can get to that, because I, I will tell you for a fact, if you gave me 30 days to do that, I would 100% be able to do it without question, without question. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you said a billion, I don't think I could. And why not? Is it any different? It's no, it's actually no different. It sounds crazy. And anybody but it's like, you're in your fucking mind. No one's creating a billion dollars in 30 days. But guess what? People are. Yeah. Now, not through this exercise, not through this way, but there are people are. Jeff Bezos will create a billion dollars today. Well, and that, it's, it's what we practice, right? Like it's what we know and what we practice. This resonates for me a lot in the sense that we build confidence by practicing things and showing ourselves that we can do it. Like intuition, even it's a muscle. It's not just a God-given gift that some people have and other people don't. Everybody has a form of inner knowing, multiple forms of inner knowing, and we choose to train it the way you would train for a marathon. And I think making money is the same thing. Yeah. And you do have to believe to create it. I get, you know what it is that's also holding me back here and I want to take a moment and pause to say it, is that you and I are two people in bodies that are white skin bodies that are, I don't know how you identify, but the world would look at us in our opposite sex marriages with children and say we're cis-identifying probably straight people, although I'm not assuming, and that we're not necessarily in the space of this conversation dealing with all of the structural and systemic barriers that, you know, multiple generations of oppression have put on other people. So I feel called in this moment to just take a pause to acknowledge you and I have many degrees of privilege to sit here and have this conversation to speculate about our ability to manifest a million or a billion in a month. Mm. And I think that's why I feel held back a little bit is to say, I do want to acknowledge the, the leap for people who are facing a multitude of barriers to just survive and get through their day to get to that million feels like a much bigger space to get there. And I'm not saying it can't be done. Yeah, I think that's not a at really all. Fair call out. I mean, really fair call out. What I would what I would say to that is, and it's not me being defensive about whether I can make a million no, in the next thirty it's, days. No, it's actually fair. It's a fair call because my original reaction was, yeah, but. But then as you kind of start saying, I started. I sat with it a little bit longer. I'm like, okay, for sure. I think it's the the gap from where you are to where you want to be is is certainly wider. And look, I'm a straight white male. Like I do, for certain, I get that sort of position. But I think the, the, this is this is also just meant to be. Uh, an example of how to sort of yeah. test. You could you could sub out money with something else that's maybe a little bit more equal access, if you will. It's just yeah. it's about creating the 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 sort of the self test around where are you. And I think as you start feeling closer to that becoming a reality, because again, I want to go back in time a little bit to when I was a high school dropout, poor white trash kid yes. whose family was in like construction or drug dealing basically right. there was no world where that should have been me either right so at that point i would have not believed or known now again a little bit different i did have some of these these underlying just like almost just like I, again like i don't i don't know where this came from but i just systemic I just systemic white privilege but but i, I hear what you're saying and i agree with exactly that. like i did i did even yeah. know that even then i guess to a degree but you could look at those around me and still see 
a large gap from where they were, you know, to where they're going to be. And, and it's, again, this is more meant as an exercise well, to just kind of help ourselves, you know, test our, our faith and imagination. I will say that every person that I've met in my life who has accomplished great things, especially in society, in terms of their impact, in terms of the business world, in terms of what they've created, whether it's in their own wealth or in their wealth of joy and fulfillment, believe it is possible. And if you don't believe it is possible, you're not at the same starting line. You'll never meet somebody who has any, like it could be, it could be success in, in sports, in school, in life, whatever it is that, that has had it that said, I never thought I would get here. Yeah. You'll never see that. Never. Yeah. Because it's impossible. <laughs> because if you don't think you're going to get there, then you won't. Well, and I think this speaks to the power of relationships and the power of mentorship. And I say that as somebody who seeks out mentors for myself all the time, I use the language of mentors, but I also talk about expanders. Like, who do I call into my life to show me what my expanded potential could be? Because I think, sure, there are some people who do have a hugely creative imagination or they've consumed enough media and literature to really have a vision of what that could be without knowing it. But I think for most people, you do need to see or feel or sense what that potential future could look like and learn about it before you can necessarily bring that into existence. What do you think? Am I, I do is that a reach too far? You, you, no, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. So I think practically speaking, you do have to, in order to visualize something, you have to know it exists. So I think there are if that's what we're saying here, I think there is a, a sense of you do need to know some things. And so I guess that's kind of maybe like circling back to some kind of core. And I know this isn't like a, how do I hack this type thing? But if we were you know having that conversation, you'd probably say curiosity is probably pretty important to all of this too, right? So being yes. curious enough to know it's available to you, having enough imagination to see it, and then having enough faith to know it's, know it's possible. But I think curiosity is key as part of this like matrix of ways of being, or, or I don't even know what those are personality traits, if you will. So I think, yeah, I think that makes sense to me. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So I just want to jump back. I know we don't have more hours to be talking, but I'm really curious to know because you shared your life and your story up to your divorce and up to this conversation with your son. Can you take us through the reality that you created once you went through that period of major transition? You said you were filing for bankruptcy. You were leaving your marriage. I don't know what else was going on and where it led to. Yes, sure. So I, that was, I'll kind of like timestamp some of this just to kind of help kind of keep it in line. So that would have been 2012, I think. And Mm -hmm. I had left, I, I moved into a hotel, just it's from a transitionary perspective. And, you know, I was getting kind of the kids settled and ex wife settled in a, it was a, it's a strange story how we got here. We, we had, we had decided prior to getting divorced, we knew that the marriage was at its kind of final moment. And we decided to sell our house, pack up and go to California for two and a half months, rent a van. And we always felt that we needed to be somewhere else. We had this real mm. like mutual striving nature. Like the problem wasn't us. The problem was the environment in which we were in. I think this is common, especially most young, younger couples or people even maybe in general. And, and so we said, let's go to California. Let's go live. Like we've got lots of money and, you know, just, just kind of throw it all to the wind. And if we can't make it work there, then shit, we can't make it work anywhere. 
So we went, we packed up with the kids. We, we put all our stuff in like containers, all our like furniture, stored it, flew out to California and then basically drove from, you know, San Francisco down to San Diego, San Diego, all the way across to Austin and then back kind of, and then around into this whole kind of like, you know, Southwestern, mostly focused on California, stayed in some just beautiful places, you know, had kind of an amazing time. Kids, you know, still remember, you know, most of it to, to this day. When we got to Austin, we were kind of near the end of the trip and we sat down and we said, yeah, this, this still isn't working, you know, even in this amazing, you know, sort of external situation, it's, you know, no matter yeah. where you go, there you are. And, yeah. and it's us. So we came back, we decided to get divorced, had to buy another house. So they got a house, got them settled in. I proceeded to go bankrupt and go through that period. So I want to be really clear prior to, and I'm going to use again, money as a heuristic only because it's, it's, it's an easy kind of quantification to kind of give you a sense, but I want to be clear that it's intrinsic things that I value, but yes. I'm going to use this just as a way to kind of help paint the picture. So okay. before we left that business was before it went bankrupt, quite successful. We had, we had built a pretty nice life. I would say, you know, from an asset perspective, maybe not, not including houses, Definitely had, you know, sort of an excess of million dollar net worth with the business, probably a few million even at that point. And kind of fast forward, going through the divorce, having to, you know, kind of figure out how to pay support, having a business that had failed, was failing, not very employable person, always been an entrepreneur, so kind of getting the jobs always been difficult. So needed to start another business kind of quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I got to a point probably about 2014, I was living in Toronto at this point and I was $650,000 in debt and I was driving. I was in, I was in East end of Toronto and I came up to a light and a, a homeless guy came up to me and he had a cup in his hand and I could see in his hand and the cup that he had two tens and some change at the bottom, probably, you know, anywhere between, you know, sort of 30 and $40 in there. Yeah. And at that moment he had more net worth than I did. I had $18 in the bank wow. and $650,000 in debt. And oh, what a moment, but I knew, but I knew going back to sort of the, some of the theme of this, this podcast, I knew mm -hmm. at that moment that if that, if I wasn't dead, if I wasn't working a shitty job at this point, if I was still somehow able to send child support, I never missed a support payment. If I was still able to send child support, if I was still able to pay the rent in which the house I was living in, if I was still able to eat and keep and, and feed the kids, all the stuff, if I was still able to do all of that, I was like, this shit's going to work. Yeah. This shit's going to work. Like, this is the bottom and it's mm -hmm. still working. Mm -hmm. And so from that moment on, I mean, that was the bottom. That was the moment. And then it's, then I wasn't long after that, that my, my business partners in this new business I had formed got into this incubator called Y Combinator in California. And they gave us a lifeline in terms of some money and got us into their program, which we were able to then build a small product. And then we were able to raise some more money and hire some people and then raise some more money and hire some people and sort of fast forward to today, you know, that company has now raised, you know, over $65 million dollars. We have 175 people working there. So this is Rose Rocket. This is Rose Rocket. I've, I found my absolute life partner in that process, who's now the mother of my fourth child. And we have a beautiful life and a beautiful home. And she's not only is she, she an amazing you know, partner, but she's also, she's in this industry and she has an amazing thriving business in, in this industry. So we're able to help each other because we both have experience in the work that we do. She's actually my customer, but I also do some work for her to help her with her sales team. So we have this really beautiful kind of symbiotic 
work relationship and, and home relationship and love relationship where we've been able to build, uh, you know, I would, I would classify as extraordinary wealth, mm-hmm. uh, not just from a fiscal perspective, but from just a lifestyle perspective. I work the way I want to work. I'm largely have replaced myself at work. So my time is almost completely my own. I have abundance beyond abundance at this point in time. And I don't have any debt anymore. <laughs> Congrats. So, That's a huge congrats. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's it's been a ride. So, and, and I mean, when you kind of look at that in the moments in the time that felt like it was going on forever. And I want to say, you know, to anybody who's in the bottoming out stage right now, or is yeah. about to hit bottom or thinks they're at bottom and they're not. Cause I'll tell you what, that moment with the cup, that was about the fifth time that I thought I'd hit bottom. You know, it's like, oh shit, this is the bottom. And it was, I wasn't there yet, you know? And so it does, it, it does, it does get better. If, if you were on the right path doing the right thing and you know, you're doing the right thing because you are doing well to yourself, to others, and you are focused on creating extraordinary value for the world and those around you, it will work. It 100% will work. The mm-hmm. limitation to your success is your faith and your yes. ability to see it through. That is it. And so that, that if you were creating value in the world, the long tail, this is the key. Don't cheat it. The long tail is profit. The front end is value creation. You create value in the, the money, the wealth, and however you define that wealth. That wealth could be time. That wealth could be intrinsic experiences. That wealth could be whatever that might be. And that right. changes. I want to be clear. My, my idea of wealth has changed. Like, a lot. Because I will say too, just as a sidebar to this, for someone who's been, you know, up in terms of finances, been to the bottom. And I want to be clear, before that up, I was at the bottom too. So it's been bottom up, bottom right. up. Happiness is not waiting for you on the other side of that paycheck, I promise. So if you're banking on when I make this much, then I will be happy. That is not true. And I know what you're thinking. You're hearing me this and you're saying, yes, yeah, says the person who's got the money, because that's what people with money always say. But guess what? You're going to be one of those people soon too. And you'll be saying the same thing because it's fucking true. Yeah. Says the guy, says the guy who is looking at the man in the street with 20, 21 bucks in his cup exactly. and 650 like in debt. It. Yeah. Easy to say. Right. Exactly. But trust it. Right. And I, and I thought, and I, cause I say that cause I said that and I know that, but the reality right. is that the wealth is all intrinsic things anyway. And we're using money as a narrative is easy to point to. It's pretty binary. It's an easy thing to kind of say, Oh, that's a measurement, right? It does not define success by any means. In fact, I could argue it does the opposite. But what it does, though, is it certainly gives you a good sense of a North Star, if you will. And I think, it, yes. I think it's an important North Star because I believe so deeply in visualizing and having kind of these, these goals that make your stomach turn because they're so audacious. That, that's how you know it's the right goal. And you kind of go towards that. I think the mistake I made on the journey to kind of digress a bit to this, but on the journey of creating financial wealth is I was singularly focused on that, believing that that was the key to unlock my, my, you know, inner conflicts, my inner sicknesses. Right. And it was not. So I kind of got there to the top of the mountain. I was like, Oh shit, this isn't here. (laughs) There's a pile of trauma in my basement. Exactly. So it's like, okay, now I got to go to work on that. Still that work that you don't get to, you don't get to cheat code that because you made some money. So that's kind of the, that's the other side of that. But I think at the end of the day, the point of this is to say, create the value and the version of wealth in which you define it will follow on the long tail. It works every single time it has since the, since value creation was created or imagined or thought of or put into play, mm-hmm. that is, that's always been that way. And that, that, that is a universal truth. And so that I think is something I'm, I'm coming on to a little bit later in life as an understanding. But looking back, I can look at that and say, that's 100% how, 
how this works. So when I look at why Rose Rock and how did that work, it's because we were focused on creating extraordinary value. That works right. every time. Justin, you are truly an inspiring human being. And I'm so grateful that we got to have this conversation where you could share from your roots and from your upbringing and all of the things that you've learned that brought you to this present moment. And I feel that there will be many people listening who needed to hear this story, especially around, I've heard people in the coaching world call it like money mindset, but really what you're talking about is manifesting and creating the life of your dreams because you can because you believe, because you believe it's possible and you can imagine it. And I just think that that is medicine to, to my ears. And hopefully everybody who listens can fully, fully receive the gift that you've been giving. So well, thank you. That's thank you so that. much. Love, my pleasure. I love sharing it. And as you teach, you learn so much. So I, I find myself reminded and, and sort of re-energized as a result of, you know, having this conversation with you. So, you know, thank you for allowing me to take a whole bunch out of this. To our audience, I want to say thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share, or click the notification button on your podcast platform. For those listening on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful for a five-star rating and a written review. This will also make it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you want to connect with me more, please join me on Substack. I will be posting longer form written pieces about my intuitive changemaker journey, as well as bonus audio content and having online discussions with the intuitively aligned podcast community. You can also find me through Instagram at Sydney Rebeck. Yes, that's Sydney Rebeck without an A on the end or through my website, www.sydneybloom.com. I also want to give a shout out to our podcast producer, Wilson Lynn. And I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode.